0: Good evening, everyone. It's been a little while since I've been here. And uh, it's just good to see some familiar faces and to see some new faces as well. Glad to be with you. Um, We bring you greetings from the great state of Pennsylvania. Uh, It is cooler there than it is here, so we're also enjoying a little bit of temperature change. Uh, as Lucy mentioned, we have the awesome opportunity to work with the Core Discipleship Program. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a nine-month discipleship and evangelism training program, kind of empowering young adults and adults alike to own their faith, find their calling and to give them tools to change the world around them. And so they're learning how to give personal Bible studies, how to do literature evangelism, health evangelism, cross-cultural missions. We have a big emphasis on mental health and practical Christianity and public speaking as well. And uh, if you're not able to commit nine months, we have a five-month option for you uh, that starts in January and goes through the month of May. And then we're also going to have an online option available soon. But right now, our Three Angels Messages class is available for free. And so if you'd like to get a taste for what the CORE program is about, what our curriculum covers, you can do that for free. And uh, we're going to be expanding our CORE online library over the next year or so. So we're excited about that. And our website is coreevangelism.com if you'd like to know more information about what we do and how you can get involved. But... Uh, What we'll be covering this evening is the topic of healing from bad religion and church hurt. So that's kind of the title for this evening's message. Um, Tomorrow we'll deal with our need of counseling uh, in in ways that maybe you don't... uh, Think. Uh, Not everyone needs a therapist per se, but we're going to deal with that topic tomorrow. Kind of why we believe the stuff that we believe that's so harmful and hurtful. And then uh, tomorrow afternoon, we're going to open up for questions and answers uh, about this topic of bad religion and church hurt, how to navigate that. So if you have questions about these topics, uh, we're going to address those, have a short little segment of thoughts that we'll share with you and then we'll go into actually addressing questions and whatnot. So that's kind of our trajectory for the weekend, Uh, but we're stoked to be here. So this is my wife, Sarah. Um, I, yeah, I almost said I acquired you since I was here last, but that sounds quite uh, not what we intended. Anyway, we got married since I was here last and I'm stoked about that. Um, So yeah, let's kind of talk about uh, this big picture of bad religion in particular. Um, What's the big deal? Why is this such a problem? And so, um, yeah, what are some examples of bad religion?
1: Ooh, Um, examples of bad religion. Maybe just unhealthy thought patterns or misunderstandings of God.
0: Okay, yeah. Maybe uh, seeing pictures, uh, you know, like, you see, like, televangelists or... Uh, people who are like getting super rich you send me your money. God will bless you Maybe you've been pistol whipped with the Bible the spirit of prophecy by well-intended people um, Forms of spiritual abuse being told what you ought to be you better be or else kind of bad pictures or misrepresentations of God right is largely what we're talking about in that sense and so um, Yeah, let's kind of go into God's perspective on this. So I'll kind of do the brief little short Bible study, and then I want to pass the time over to Sarah to share some thoughts on that. So I'd like to uh, go into Scripture briefly just to kind of give you a picture of where God stands on this issue. So if you'd like to go to Ezekiel chapter 36, um, I need to update my slides here, but go to Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to read verses 22 and 23. Ezekiel chapter 36. And verses 22 and 23. Would you like to read that for us? Mm -hmm.
1: Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed before their eyes.
0: All right, so this is really important because how many people in this room are frustrated by bad religion or have a problem with bad religion? When people are claiming to know God and misrepresent Him and hurt other people, how many people in this room have a problem with that? I hope every hand is going to go up, not just to make me happy because it's like bad and stuff, that's why it's called bad religion, it's not actually recommended. So here in Ezekiel 36, God's missional plan was to reach the world through the nation of Israel. That's what he wanted to do, that through the teachings and example of the nation of Israel, the surrounding nations would be like, man, these people got it together. The God that they worship makes sense and is awesome. Yeah, I wanna follow that God too. But is that what happened according to Ezekiel 36? No, right? They cause the surrounding nations to hate God, instead of leading them to love God and to want to serve Him. And God seems to be upset by this. Who takes consolation in that? That God is actually upset by bad religion being manifest by people who are claiming to know Him, but are misrepresenting Him. Yeah, God has a problem with this, and I really hope you understand that and, and really kind of internalize this. God is not a fan of bad religion. God is even more upset about it than you are because they're misrepresenting him, right? So he's got a big problem with it. So we've dealt with God, um, God the Father. Now let's look at Jesus's perspective on bad religion. And this is in Acts chapter 26, where the apostle Paul is telling his testimony to King Agrippa. Acts chapter 26, and I'm just gonna read quickly here, verses 12 to 18, and listen to what he says. Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 18. Now he tells this story. And by the way, Paul has this radical conversion experience and it's a beautiful experience. But what was he like before Jesus got a hold of him? Good boy or bad boy? What do you think? Yeah, some serious problems, right? He was a, a beautiful poster child of what bad religion looks like, persecuting and lashing out at people who don't believe like I believe. Hmm. That was him, right? Mm-hmm. And so. This is what happens now as he has this encounter. Verse 12. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what it says? What's it say? Why are you persecuting me? Well, wait a minute, did Saul of Tarsus have an arrest warrant for Jesus of Nazareth? No, No, right? Where was Jesus at this stage? Jesus is in heaven. So why is it that Jesus says, why do you persecute me if Saul's really persecuting Christians? Why does he say that? Okay, it's great, Matthew 25, what you've done to the least of these you've also done to me. So notice here, whose side is Jesus sympathizing with? The bad religionist harming other people in the name of religion, or those who were harmed by bad religion? Whose side is Jesus taking? Those who were harmed, right? Again, take consolation in this. He says, you're persecuting me when you persecute them. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he says a second time, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting but rise and stand on your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister of witness, both of the things which you have seen, Jesus Christ himself, and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Here's the amazing thing. In this circumstance, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're a stinker and get out of here. Mm -hmm. He says, I came to you for this purpose so that you would be a minister for me to the Gentiles. I don't know about you, but if you were to do like, you ever have like those drafts that would happen when you're on the playground in schools or picking teams who's gonna be on my team to play basketball or dodgeball or football. Yeah, I wouldn't be picking him to be on my team, would you? Mm -hmm. And yet Jesus says, yeah, I want him on my team, but, There's a big variable here. The big change that happens is Saul has a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ himself. And when that happens, he becomes a different person. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't look at Saul of Tarsus, this bad religionist, based upon what he currently is. He views him for what he could become. And let me ask you a question. Was Saul sincere in wanting to do the right thing? Yes. Yes. We can't lose sight of this. Those who are deeply entrenched in bad religion, many times are wanting to do the right thing, but they have broken infrastructure. They have mindsets that are out of sorts, right? Are you understanding? And I think we need to make sure that we do this. We don't see them as just awful, evil people who hate God's guts and don't want to do anything right. Many times are people who want to do the right thing, but don't have the tools to do it correctly worldviews, inherited or cultivated tendencies and so forth. Does that make sense? But the good news is God the Father has a beef with bad religion. Jesus has, bad re- has a beef with bad religion. And the last thing is this statement from Ellen White, uh, one of the founders of the Adventist Church. And unfortunately, there may be people in this room who have negative views of Ellen White because of how she's been quoted or used by well-meaning Christians, right, well-meaning Adventists. And uh, the irony to me is when she died, the people in the surrounding community referred to her as that woman who always talks so lovingly about Jesus, not as this cranky old lady who told people what not to do, which is what some of us think about her, right? Anyway, listen to what she says. She says, nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by politicians. Is that what she says? Who's she talking about? Our brethren, who are our brethren? Seventh-day Adventists, okay? Nothing frightens Ellen White more than seeing Seventh-day Adventists act like children, lashing out at each other with a spirit of variance. She says, we are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courteously examine controverted points. She's basically saying, if you can't look like and act like Jesus when talking about Jesus, you need jesus that's what she's saying here okay we're on dangerous ground if we can't talk with people who disagree with us on certain issues even within the faith like christians and treat them with kindness she says i feel like fleeing the place lest i receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the bible anybody ever felt like walking out of a sabbath school when things got too contentious Anybody ever felt like walking out of a church board meeting or a church business meeting when things got contentious? She said the same. I feel like fleeing the place when this stuff happens. But then she says, those who cannot impartially examine evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. She says, people who look like this shouldn't be pastors shouldn't be elders, shouldn't be Sabbath school teachers, shouldn't be deacons, shouldn't be deaconesses, shouldn't probably even be parents, right? You're supervising people and you got toxic stuff in your DNA. She says they shouldn't be in forms of leadership, why? Because they don't know how to act like Christians while claiming to be Christians and pushing Christian worldviews. Are you with me? So Ellen White also had a problem with that. Now she's not on the same plane as God and Jesus. We all agree on that, right? But as a founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and someone who's many times misquoted or her spirit is misquoted while her words are taken out of context and hurt other people, I just wanna make sure it's clear that she's distancing herself from that as well. Does that make sense? Just wanna lay that foundation. Now, we'll go into our next section here of my wife's story.
1: Okay, so um, I have a big part of my story kind of rooted in the whole situation of bad religion. And I grew up in an Adventist home, and my parents were striving for balance. They were loving parents, and they ended up moving into this community that was pretty legalistic, and a group of people that really relied on salvation by works um, whenever they thought that they were teaching righteousness by faith, which they're very two opposing thoughts and methods of doing things, but somehow they uh, melded together and it didn't work out very well. so my impression of God was um, that he was really strict. He was very overbearing. Um, he was just not the most friendly person, even though he was labeled as love. And um, my impression of God deteriorated because of the way that he was portrayed to me. And that you know, misinterpretation of God's character really caused me to believe that a God of love really didn't exist and I ended up being so scared of God, you guys. Like, I would go to bed um, crying and confessing over and over and over again because I thought that God wasn't pleased with me. And I was really trying to earn his favor. Um, and the works that I did, the prayers that I did, you know, waking up at 4 a.m., thinking that that was going to earn God um, or my favor with God. Um, and honestly, it was pretty miserable. Um, I felt like I could never be good enough for him. And so at that point, I thought, well, like, is it even worth trying? But even with that thought in mind, I try to press forward regardless. Um, And honestly, that is where things really went wrong for me. Because looking back, if you told me to love, trust, and serve someone with the character that my mind had of God, I wouldn't trust that person or love that person at all, right, but here um, a church was pushing this idea of me like trust God and, you know, do what he says you should do whenever like the person that he really was in my mind and heart was not a safe person. Um, and I just believe that, you know, so many of us as Christians have these distorted thoughts and beliefs on who God is. and um, it's just really a misalignment with his character. So that kind of legalism that I grew up with affirmed my already anxious heart. Um, and honestly that, um, that would be the state of mind and heart that would ensure that all of my bases were covered so I could be right with God in the church. Like I really felt like I had to be very anxious, um, in order to achieve a certain level or expectation and Constantly, you know, my community would affirm that to me. There was no alternate route. There was no really um, Level of peace that I could have within the church I just felt like anxiety was the way to do life and the way to do spirituality So at that point I um, Leaving God was really my only option to get out of that place of misery. And so one morning I just decided that I had enough of the way that spirituality was done, the way that religion was done. And I just got up and left that morning and decided, you know, I was going to try to find love or, you know, more balanced thinking in other places. And I hoped that one day I would find a God of love. But I wasn't sure at that point if he really existed just by the way that he was portrayed to me um, and that led me to deconstruct which we'll talk about a little bit more um, but that deconstruction eventually led me to deconvert and that caused me to be in this place of emptiness loneliness I was just raw and broken from that whole whole experience and really vulnerable um, and because I was now believing that manipulation and coercion were how God operated, it really shut down my ability to see it in other people and view it as unsafe and unhealthy. So that kind of mindset and way of growing up and you know those ties to spirituality um, really set me up or primed me, I would say, for entering into abusive relationships because um, my brain didn't know that that was unhealthy and I ended up um, being in an abusive relationship for years um, thinking that it was actually a very godly relationship uh, which is unfortunate, it just shows you kind of the state of mind that I was in. I really didn't know how to think critically for myself and Um, when somebody was telling me like everything I should do or demanding things of me or making me feel like I would never be good enough um, or putting like these endless requirements on me it really felt normal because it was like the religious context that I left and I had no idea that this was unhealthy or wrong Um, and I would say if I did have a healthier view of God and knew what the balance was supposed to be I more than likely would have seen those red flags and would have run from that right um, let's see. I know Dee and I decided to skip a few yeah, things, but I'm not sure.
0: Act some of it. There you
1: go. Oh, okay. Something that we've really noticed is that these negative pictures of God are hiding in the subconscious realm, um, which is really unfortunate because it's hard to spot in that case. Sometimes it's the way that we were taught religion. Sometimes it's because we have predispositions to think a certain way. Um, And it's honestly hard to disentangle, but it's not impossible. And another thing that we've noticed is that fear-based religion um, is not only a huge part of my story, but countless others. Uh, I've talked to so many people who were rooted in fear. Um, Diaz met countless young adults as well. (laughs) who have their religion rooted in fear. Um, and here's the thing, like fear is the foundation of religion that's practiced in a legalistic and perfectionistic way. And doctrines that are divorced from the deep love of Jesus found in the gospel sets itself for viewing God through the lens of many distortions that lack love, peace, and assurance. Um, there's so many Adventists and Christians who actually don't even have assurance of salvation at this point just because of the way that religion has been introduced to them. And we know that fear is a great motivator, and it motivates us to take control so that the unthinkable won't happen, right? It helps us so we can have control over feeling or not feeling pain, or so we don't lose, etc. And control feels really good to our flesh because control gives us a sense of safety. it's so hard to release control and land in the arms of safe love. That was my experience. Um, And it's so hard to lean into the gospel because the gospel truly penetrated into the soul requires a surrender to love. And it's so hard to even make that surrender because oftentimes God feels like a relatively decent friend in our mind, but a stranger to our emotional being. And so generally we don't trust strangers, right? Um, At least not fully. So we are then in need of control so we can attempt at predicting an outcome in our spiritual experience in our relationship with God. But um, a favorite quote of mine from Elizabeth Gilbert says, "'The reason why it's so hard to surrender is because we want to be in control, but we never really had control. All we ever had was anxiety." Mm -hmm. AKA fear, right? So fear of what? You guys can help us name some things, but for, A lot of people in my community, and for me, it was fear that my kids will make it to heaven or fear that God will be mad at me if I don't wake up and do divas at 4 a.m., right? Or fear my religious leader is going to give me the stankai because my skirt's not long enough. Things like that, right? And we could go on naming fears that come up in the religious context for days. Um, But honestly, it's really heartbreaking because at the bedrock of how we practice religion lies fear, which is honestly in complete opposition to the bedrock of the gospel and the bedrock of the gospel is love um, which is really reassuring to my heart and i'm so thankful to god that that is the case Um, and it's kind of ironic because perfect love casts out fear so if we truly had the essence of the gospel which is love in the way that we practice religion fear wouldn't even be an option we wouldn't need those cognitive distortions like perfectionism or black and white thinking legalism, etc., to access God, um, be holy, or be self-assured of our salvation. We um, wouldn't have to lean on those distortions, right, to earn our salvation. And I really think that um, church hurt and bad religion would significantly drop if um, our religion wasn't rooted in fear. And that's why Dee and I are so passionate about calling these issues out. Um, because they cause so much pain in a place or church where so much healing should be happening instead. So.
0: Yeah. So I think that this is kind of... It's important for us to kind of realign our worldview that what the foundation of our experience should be is not, I have to do these things to ensure that God will like me or to get myself out of trouble or to get myself out of debt or so forth, but to recognize that the beautiful objective truth of the gospel is that God loves you full stop. Not God loves you if whatever, right? You do this or don't do this. And love is the best motivator. While fear seems like an effective motivator, it doesn't lead to lasting change, right? It'll get somebody out of their seat, but it will also cause somebody to trample an innocent stranger to get out of a burning theater, right? Like, so it it has consequences. And what we're realizing is, though we haven't... it's not like people are sitting in boardrooms and saying hey you know what would really make evangelism effective let's make people terrified right let's put the crazy scary dragons in front of the church and tell people to come listen to the meetings about these scary beasts right or whatever um and those beasts are in revelation but is that the best motivator to get people in the building or to keep them in the church the answer clearly is no because those people largely don't stay so the question is what do we use as a motivator and love is a far more effective tool now, it doesn't mean that love doesn't have... Um parameters within it, right, on what a healthy relationship looks like, and the fact that God has principles for our flourishing. But anyway, I just think that's uh, an important caveat there. But one of the things we want to address now is this idea of the deconstruction movement, because it's super popular, um, even within Adventism, that if you've encountered church hurt or bad religion, right, the easy route is we've got the pill, we've got the elixir, it's deconstruction. But we need to define these terms to make sure we're actually doing something that will lead to the appropriate results we're looking for um, because the more research we've done on this we're realizing there's probably a better way to go about this but it's super popular uh, within social media so I want to kind of talk on some of that yeah
1: and i really think that the reason why it's popular is because so many people are hurting um, in their spiritual life there's this massive you know separation or spiritual um, distance, if you could call it that, that's happening between people and God because people are no longer viewing God as a safe person based on how religion is, you know, taught to them. And so, of course, if something doesn't feel safe or is not working for you, it's only natural, right, to want to just throw it out. But Dee and I are just saying, like, hold on a second, like, pause, and um, let's see how we can do something maybe a little bit different that isn't so drastic. So... Um, the deconstruction movement and its origins started with someone named David Hayward um, who calls himself Naked Pastor. And he's saying that, you know, if you're interested in deconstruction and spiritual journeying, freedom from freedom of thought or looking for your authentic self, you're welcome to join me while I search too. And his original definition for deconstruction is um, it's not the slight change in a belief system, it's the demolition of one's belief system, and it truly is meant to help you deconvert.
0: Yeah. So that's actually not his definition. He's redefined what deconstruction is. And so uh, and it's an important clarification because what he's calling deconstruction is not like, oh, we'll just tweak this, right? This was wrong. So tweak this. He's borrowing language that doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean adjustment. It doesn't mean a little bit of this, remove a little bit of this, but put this instead. He's using a word that implies you tear the whole thing apart. And so the real definition of deconstruction is basically taking a sledgehammer to anything in the house you don't like. Now that could be important elements that hold up the entire structure, right? It's basically to start swinging and get rid of things that you don't like. And that's dangerous because you could end up getting rid of very important infrastructure that the whole house needs to succeed. Does that make sense? And so while it sounds vogue and cool to say deconstruction, the problem is the original definition does not lend to you keeping your faith. It leads to complete deconversion. Does that make sense? So the original language is not helpful nor should it be used in a context of trying to realign your faith experience to be more biblical and less toxic that's not really an option with this original definition of the word deconstruction does that make sense okay and so there's many examples of this uh joshua harris is one of them um how many people have heard of the book i kiss dating goodbye anybody heard of that book Well, Joshua Harris has kissed Christianity goodbye at this stage, unfortunately. And a lot of this happened because he came from a framework of a very conservative environment. He wanted to write a book that would change the world. I think his family was in the publishing work, and he did. Um, And his book, later in life, he came to recognize had helped some people. His book had also hurt some people, and there's tension there. Um, And what he eventually confesses to later is that there was a lot of fear inside of him as he wrote this book. He wrote it when he was 19 or 21 and had been in one relationship. And yet this book became the Bible on relationships in many evangelical and homeschool uh, conservative environments. Many Adventist families were using this book and saying this is like the thing. And while it is good to understand that dating is not just this recreational venture, who cares what happens to your emotions or whatever, it's fine, his attempts at bringing balance to the equation went in the opposite direction. And part of the reason for that was because the bedrock for why he was writing was fear. He confesses this later. There's a TED Talk called Brave Enough to be Wrong or Strong Enough to be Wrong. I always get it confused. But it's quite in, intriguing uh, what he shares. This is as he's in the middle of his journey before he left Christianity. And he recognizes, he says, there were a lot of fear in me as I wrote that book. Fear of having a broken heart, fear of doing the wrong thing, and, and fear of sex and, and many other things. And so because of this, and he says that fear is not a good motivator he acknowledges that later he eventually stopped doing pastoral ministry and switched to go back to school to further his studies he Was pastoring for years in the virginia area near dc he goes to college and as he's in college all these people are telling him things the same stuff he was hearing on twitter for people your book ruined my life your book hurt me one lady said your book was used against me like a weapon and he responded to her and said i'm so sorry as opposed to viewing her as a hater as most people are something inside led him to choose compassion and to listen, as opposed to just counting her off. And as they start to dialogue back and forth through their their, uh, instant messaging or direct messages or whatever, she said, no pastor has ever acknowledged he was wrong in my life. This is the first time someone has said, I'm sorry, from any religious leader in her life. And two, that she'd ever had someone take time to hear her story. And as he hears her story and starts to process this, then he goes to college and other people are telling him similar stories. And he's struggling because he really meant well when he wrote the book. He wasn't trying to hurt people. But again, like Saul he had infrastructure that's not set up for success. Are you understanding? Especially if the bedrock is fear. And so in his context, he eventually made a documentary. You can watch it on YouTube for free called I Survived I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it's pretty thought-provoking. Do I agree with all of his conclusions? Maybe not. Um, but there's some very interesting thoughts that he came to as he realized this tension of I wanted to do the right thing, but then people were hurt and wrestling through the, the pain of that. And he came to a more balanced view at that stage, but eventually the problem is in many conservative environments, and we'll allude to this tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning, that our identity for many of us, especially in conservative environments, can many times be tied to being right because we're standing for the right. And so the problem is when someone challenges something that you believe, even if it's just this teaching or this perspective on this one topic, the problem is your identity was tied. You have skin in the game. Your identity is tied to being right. And if someone shows you that something you believed was wrong, that's now an existential threat to you at the identity level. Are are you tracking? And eventually this eroded any form of real foundation that Joshua Harris had. And eventually he found himself being separated from his wife and questioning his own faith. He's now divorced from his wife and no longer identifies as a Christian. And the reason why this happened was these environmental factors we're alluding to tonight of having infrastructure that isn't healthy woven into your Christianity. And if you go even further in having your identity tied to being right and someone shows you to be wrong, you've got nothing left to stand on. Does that make sense? You also are in danger, right? If you're just inheriting your parents' religion or something else and you're just regurgitating it when someone challenges something that you believe, well, you don't even really believe that. You're just borrowing somebody else's belief system and peddling it as your own as a second generation adherent. But it's not actually yours. And when somebody challenges it, this is why so many young people, once they get to college, even Adventist College, when somebody challenges their beliefs, they don't know what to do. When someone gives an argument you never heard before, they don't know what to do, and eventually the whole foundation just crumbles. Are you understanding? And it's because we aren't dealing with deep root issues, people finding a deep abiding love relationship with Jesus that's founded on truth and that's theirs individually. When we don't lay that foundation, harm ensues or insecurity will arise and people will just fall out the back door. So that was Josh's story and it's an unfortunate one, Um, but we see examples of this, kind of this interweaving of bad religion. But the common denominator for many of these stories that we could marshal this evening are bad religion, misalignment with the gospel, religion steeped in man-made constraints, control, abuse, righteousness by works, quick fixes, prosperity gospel, black and white thinking, etc. And we'll readdress some of these points over the course of the weekend too. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so a question then is, is there uh, a place for deconstruction? Right? Like, is, there, is it bad? Is it good? Is it indifferent? Is it, is it neutral? By original definition, it's a complete destruction of one's belief system. So, is it safe or healthy for a Christian to deconstruct? I don't know about that. Is there a place for deconstruction at all? I would say yes. Some examples of this are King Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 2, he's in a crisis. He's had this, I was going to say nightmare. He's had this dream and this vision, and he doesn't know what to do with it. It's very important. He doesn't have any resolution to how he's feeling. He doesn't know where to go from here. And so what King Nebuchadnezzar does is he calls his wise men and does the religion that he's running to provide him any solutions? No. No. They say, we don't have your answers and no one can have those answers and nobody in their right mind would even ask such a thing. And when your heart is anxious and you're longing for resolution and your religious leaders are telling you, yeah, that's not really that important. No one can do anything about that except the gods, by the way, their dwelling is not with flesh. They don't care about us. They don't live here. They don't pay attention to us, right? We put our obedience in the vending machine, and sometimes we get their favor, but they're not accessible. He realized the futility of the religious structure that he was in. It couldn't actually provide heart solutions. It couldn't provide anything, and the God of heaven intervenes in this man's story and actually does something about it. There was a God who heard and knew his anxious thoughts and was willing to do something about it and sent Daniel to help him. And so I think it's important to understand in this context, when you have a belief system that actually cannot provide real solutions, deconstruction makes sense. Having other worldviews outside of the biblical framework, deconstruction is a viable option. Being in circumstances, another example of this is the battle with self being on the throne of our hearts right? And that kind of driving our decisions, deconstruction from that worldview is also valid. Does that make sense? But to completely swing a sledge and destroy anything that you don't like without actually doing the research to see is it biblical or not is a dangerous proposition. Are you with me? Right? When you start doing this, it can get lethal, And uh, and that's what happened to Joshua Harris, and that's what happens to many others. In fact, Josh actually was eventually um, after he left Christianity. He was even for a span offering a course where you could pay him to help you deconstruct. Can you imagine? He went from being a pastor to being someone. If you put money in my offering plate, right? If you pay me, I'll help you leave the church. But uh, there was a big kickback, a big eruption of, of frustration from people about that, and he thought better and doesn't do that anymore. But, so, but the question is, is deconstruction based upon its original definition dangerous? I would say in a Christian context, the answer is yes. But is there a viable alternative? Are we just supposed to sit here and take it when bad religion is happening? Are we just supposed to keep regurgitating bad perspectives of Adventism to the world around us because that's what we grew up with? No, thankfully. So we have an alternative, which is?
1: Disentangling. So I really like this option um, because it's really, well, let me read the definition to you. It's basically freeing your faith, your mind, your heart from entanglement with man's demands. It's extricating your faith from its entanglement weaved by power struggles, unhealthy views of God's character, abuse, and misalignment with the gospel. And I really love this because you're not needing to throw out Christianity or the gospel as a whole. It's really giving you an opportunity to disentangle any distorted thinking or teachings that you were taught um, and or, you know, um, predispositions to certain ways of thinking or doing things um, from the gospel itself, from Jesus himself. Um, and I think it's beautiful to be able to preserve um, Jesus and the gospel while also, you know, getting rid of and fleshing out the things that we've projected onto God and his character. Um, and I think... At least in my experience, it's been an incredibly freeing experience to do that. Um, I deconstructed, like I said, but also when I came back to Adventism after years of not attending church, I had to make that decision of like, what do I do now? And the only reason why I ended up in Adventism again was because of a rash promise I made to God that if He would get me out of the abusive relationship, I would go back to church. And I immediately regretted that promise because I was like, what am I thinking going back to the church that hurt me so bad? But thank God I was able to encounter this different method of doing things instead of just throwing out Christianity as a whole. I could just clear the slate and start this disentangling process with God.
0: So this idea that you can take and re-examine, right? So it, it does take some work. Right? The lazy and easy route is to just leave. Swing a sledgehammer at anything that you don't like and leave. But the difficult work, but the worthwhile work, is to actually do the digging for yourself. Search the text of of Scripture. My church said, if I don't do this, then God's going to be angry with me. Does the Bible really teach that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, to actually go through that process of making your faith your own and sorting through it, you spit out the seeds and you keep what is good. And when you do this, it's an incredibly rewarding process because your faith is now yours for one, and two, you can now recognize, oh my goodness, something that I was so vehemently opposed to is not only just a biblical teaching, it's actually beautiful and enjoyable when seen from God's perspective. Does that make sense? So you can actually fall in love with things that you used to not like by seeing them in their proper perspective and what God intended and seeing the true heart of God through those teachings. So it's an incredibly rewarding experience. That's largely what we do at the core program. And what Sarah's doing with her coaching business is helping people to go through this perspective shift to find better reasons for their faith and to actually enjoy being an Adventist Christian, right? Or a Christian as opposed to just like, I'm here because I have to be because if I leave, I'm going to get nuked, right? Like that's a miserable experience. Does God have something better for us? And the answer is absolutely yes. And that was her story.
1: So could this be a healthier, more positively directional way to bring your faith into alignment with the gospel rather than deconstruction? That was my big question as I was exploring this idea of disentangling. And before I wanted to share it with other people, I decided that it would probably be a good idea to look into what Jesus did and Jesus' ministry and how he went about this whole process. So we'll look a little bit more into that
0: yeah and i think this is fascinating because the question is right like you think of Saul of tarsus as another example like when Saul of tarsus had his conversion experience with jesus did he get rid of torah because there were needless restrictions there did, did paul do that no he didn't get rid of torah he recontextualized torah after a revelation of the true character of jesus does that make sense And we'll see this in Jesus' ministry. His ministry largely had to do with helping people to come into a proper alignment, not getting rid of everything, but seeing what he always intended all along. So in Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus had no interest in destroying the principles of the Torah. He was upset with the religious leaders for missing the true heart of God in Torah. Do you understand the difference? Because there's a really big difference here. He had to get them all, he had to get onto them all the time about this. And here's some examples. In Luke 6, 1 through 11, the disciples are rubbing kernels of grain, right, on Sabbath, and they're eating it. And Jesus tells, and the Pharisees lose their mind over this. Can you believe these guys, right? Like they're, they're harvesting on Sabbath. And Jesus tells them, well, you know, David ate the showbread, Right, Like David ate something he technically wasn't allowed to do according to the, the strictest reading of the law, but is God more concerned about adherence to a code than he is the basic needs of humanity and their flourishing? What was the main reason for the principles? And so what's really helpful in going through this, this disin, or, uh, disentangling process is to actually figure out what is the principle behind the policy. Right? Because the sanctuary service eventually ceased having a meaning for us here on earth and continuing that service. But what were the principles behind the policy? Does that make sense? Because the principles are abiding even if the times change for the policy. And so Jesus says, well, hey, you know, David was allowed to do something here and wasn't viewed as sinning in doing so. Then he says that he himself was Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was trying to disentangle their legalistic application to the law and them condemning the guiltless. In Luke eleven forty-two, 42 he says that you tithe on your herbs but you pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done but then he says without leaving the former undone. Is Jesus deconstructing here the Jewish faith or is he disentangling it from man's restrictions and misinterpretations of God's character? Which one is he doing? Hey, he's disentangling. In Luke 11:46, he says, "You load men down with burdens, but you won't lift a finger to help them. You better keep the law, you better keep the law, and they're throwing all this weight on men's shoulders, but they're not showing them how God wants to empower them to succeed in keeping the law through the message of righteousness by faith and the ministry of the Holy Spirit." Luke 11:52, he says, "You've not entered in the kingdom yourselves, and you're hindering those who are entering before you." Luke 12, 1, he tells the the people around him, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus was frustrated by the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. On John 7, 21 to 24, he says, You circumcise a man on the Sabbath to fulfill the law of Moses, but you criticize me for making a man completely well on the Sabbath. And then he tells them to judge with righteous judgment. You're being ridiculous. Even in the death of Jesus, right, they don't want Jesus to be on the cross for too long because sundown's coming. So we're crucifying an innocent Messiah that we've been longing for, but man, oh man, we don't want to make God angry, so let's make sure he's dead before sundown. Are you understanding? They had such a gross misunderstanding of who God really was and the actual purpose of the law. And this is why Jesus many times would have to say, you've heard that was said, but I say to you. But he's not saying get rid of the law. He's saying you're misunderstanding the law. You're misapplying the law. So our point is, Jesus' ministry did not consist of deconstruction. Jesus' ministry consisted of disentangling. Are you with me, guys? He was spitting out the seeds and pointing people to the true reasons and the true principles behind Torah. He didn't get rid of the law, the prophets, or the wisdom books. Paul didn't have that ministry either, okay?
1: Yeah, I just found so much consolation in studying this out and seeing this so vividly because literally like Jesus was not okay with the pain that I went through. He wasn't okay with the struggle that I went through. In fact, like, he came to earth to set the record straight of the things that I was struggling with. And that encouraged me so much. It wanted me to, it made me want to really align myself with his mission and the way that he did things. Um, And to know that he had the biggest job of bringing balance to a religious system made me feel so encouraged that yes he did have authority over this and he is able to set us free from all kinds of misconstructions that we may have about him and his character yeah
0: another one here is uh john chapter 5 and verse 18 where jesus has just healed the man at the pool of bethesda and it says that the pharisees and sadducees wanted to kill jesus because he not only because he broke the sabbath but because he claimed that he was god and That statement is a bit kind of tricky. Uh, One of my mentors uh, and one of my teachers and I went through a Bible college tells a story that he, when he first became an Adventist, was super excited about the Sabbath and all these other things. And there was this guy who was walking across the United States of America carrying a cross. It had two wheels at the base of the cross, was walking across the country witnessing and sharing with people about Jesus. And so uh, my teacher tells this guy, like, oh, hey, that's cool. Uh, That's really, that's awesome. Hey, what do you think about the Sabbath? And the guy says, the Sabbath, Jesus broke the Sabbath. And he's like, no way, dude, Jesus would never do that. He says, go to John chapter 5 and verse 18. And he reads this text and he's like, uh, they didn't tell me this one in the Bible studies. Like, he doesn't know what to do with it. But then he started doing a deep dive into the original language of what's going on here. And in John chapter 5 and verse 18, the word that's used for broke is the word luo. And every other time in the New Testament, its usage is actually implying to loose or to untie. And this is fascinating because it doesn't actually say in the original language that Jesus broke the Sabbath. It says they wanted to kill Jesus because he was loosing or untying the Sabbath. What's another word for that? Jesus was disentangling the Sabbath, and it led the bad religions of his day to literally crucify him. Jesus himself was crucified by the conservatives and the liberals and the politics of bad religion. He was crucified by both of them. So in John 5, verse 18, uh, we have that, that reference as far as Jesus loosing or untying the Sabbath. And again, in Matthew 5 through 7, he keeps saying, you've heard that was said, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Um, but the fascinating one to me is actually in Matthew chapter 26. I mean, they're all fascinating. But another one is where Jesus is wrestling with bearing the weight of the, the sin of the world this is found in Matthew chapter 20, 26 verses 36 to 46 and uh, this is really helpful for us as kind of as we were weighing through this whole idea of deconstruction and what the viable options are so in Matthew chapter 26 verses 36 to 46 it says this then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples sit here while I go and pray over there And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Then he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, "O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And this goes on three times, I'm sure you've heard this story before, but Jesus was wrestling with the weight of what God was asking of him, with the cross that he had been given. This was difficult for him. And I think this is important because at the end of the day, Jesus chose to submit to something difficult regarding the will of God for his life. And this is very important for us because many times, Deconstruction sounds like a unique option and it sounds attractive at first glance, but what you're really getting to the deep issues many times is that there are things in Christianity that make us uncomfortable. And some of the reason why it makes us uncomfortable is because the things that we're being told are unbiblical and unreasonable. But there are also other times when Jesus is telling you to take up your cross and follow him. And the question is, do I just get rid of anything that makes me uncomfortable or do I sift through whether this is coming from God and it's his will for my life, or is this something coming from man and it's not his will for my life? Are you understanding? Because if you're just going to swing at sledge at anything that's costly or that you don't like, you could be completely shedding a cross that God is asking you to bear, but he's not asking you to bear it alone. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Even Jesus didn't bear his cross alone. There were people who helped him with that and i think it's really really important for us to sift through this because if not we can get in trouble and so many times deconstruction comes from a space of not liking the cost of what's expected of us but we need to be careful with getting rid of things right or any crosses or uh, anything that crosses our comfort zone or our flesh because the gospel does that the gospel says your flesh longs to do sin but sin is not in your best interest Is that easy to do or is that hard to do is that comfortable or uncomfortable right so i think we need to sift through that before we get ourselves in trouble by kind of just slicing at whatever we don't like
1: what i really like about jesus story too is that he trusted the father he had such a beautiful deep abiding intimate relationship with the father um, and it was one that was full of love and because it was full of love he could trust that right and so when a big thing was asked of him that you know, cross his flesh, he was able to lean into that experience with the Father and continue in alignment with the mission that, you know, he was on and that the Father was trying to help him to complete, right? And I think it's the same for our experience as well. Like, if we don't have that intimate connection with love and a proper understanding, a balanced understanding of what love is portrayed in the character of God, we won't be able to trust him when he asks us to bear that cross, right? Um, and that's normal. If some, some crazy person is asking you to do something hard, you're probably not going to follow through on it or you're just going to you know, lean into what you know, your mind or body is asking you to do instead of you know, the hard thing because you don't have that safe place. You find that safe place within yourself instead of in that space of love. So that's what I really love about Jesus' story as well. And what's so important for us in that whole disentangling process is to really connect to the heart of God.
0: Yeah, I love that point. I hope you guys didn't miss that, that because Jesus knew who the Father was and knew his character intimately, it gave Jesus the ability to give the Father the benefit of the doubt and the things that were hard for him to accept when it was difficult. Does that make sense? And that's part of that disentangling, removing the things that are giving you a terrible picture of who God is and re-examining and building your own root structure based upon who he actually is right? That requires work, but it's worth it. Um, true deconstruction is the abandonment of self and this world's ambitions as well. God's kingdom doesn't operate that way, right? So if you're opposed to bearing a cross, you're actually opposed to Christ. He said in John 16, that in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's not optional. It's how things work down here since the fall but the good news is that god is not aloof to this painful experience that we go through jesus voluntarily entered into it right there is no other worldview available to humanity where the very creator god is also the one who entered into the human experience and suffered as we suffer who knows what it's like to feel cold, to feel lonely, to feel rejected, abandoned, to wrestle with the cost of what God is asking of him. Jesus is not cold and distant. This is not like the Babylonian gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. John 1 14 tells us the word became flesh and did what? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Jesus became one of us, entered into our experience. He's acquainted with the human condition. And because of that, we can follow him wherever he goes.
1: So, yeah, my story practically kind of came to this headway of I needed to decide, you know, what I was going to do coming back to church and recognizing that yeah i do need god but you know really hoping that he would be a safe person or a person of love and it really took me a solid month of just fasting praying asking for a revelation of god's character um talking to mentors and just getting like one-on-one time with god building a meaningful devotional life that was um rid of all the you know distortions that i had or the things that i thought i had to do to earn god's favor just like totally doing things differently, asking for God's guidance, looking for those shifts that were in a healthy, positive way, Um, going on a long healing journey, you know, being in therapy, um, getting community support and whatnot. And honestly, all of those steps really helped me to come to a more balanced view of God and one that is safe and secure to me now. And the beautiful thing is that through that whole process, my family was able to do a bit of that as well and come to a place of understanding. Um, And, you know, have those hard conversations as a family and talk about, you know, the things that went wrong or the things that were unhealthy that we didn't realize, you know, were unhealthy and how do we go from here? You know, how do we extend grace and forgiveness to each other? Um, And I think that's so beautiful and a powerful testimony because I know a lot of people are struggling in relationship with their kids who have left the church or, you know, children who just don't understand, like, how do I communicate to my parents because there's so many walls and barriers up but um, I'm just here to testify it is possible. It may take time and it may take a lot of tweaking and healing and all of that stuff, but it is possible and you can get there.
0: And um, part of the other beauty of the story was that when she went through a process of like building the courage to reenter church, God brought her to a church that was tailored to know what she needed, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was also beautiful as she tells her story of, like, there were people in my church who knew how to build real community, who knew how to be loving and supportive, who were intelligent in regards to recovering from abuse, who were intelligent in regards to how to rebuild your life from seeing a bad picture of God to a good picture of God. And I just love how God showed up in such a beautiful and profound way. She made a pledge, you know, if you get me out of this mess, I'll serve you, and it was scared, But what was on the other end of that commitment that she made was a space where she actually could heal and re-engage and disentangle. And I just, yeah, um, I not only love her, I love the story that God's given her and the fact that the gospel truly does work, that he's still in the business of healing the brokenhearted and setting the captives free. Yeah, want to do this one?
1: Um, We can, I guess another small point that I've kind of come to know about is just that perfectionism or the mindset of perfectionism is so unhealthy and so dangerous um, and really causes people to leave the church because the church or family systems aren't acknowledging the badness um, that is in our human nature, right? And so oftentimes um, we go to find it in other places. And a quote that I really love um from a book called safe people by dr townsend and cloud says that um, legalism and ignoring the badness in the home leads to kids needing to find or identify badness so they run to unhealthy people to find it in them because they haven't been able to find it in the badness in themselves in the home Only, so the point is that you need to own your flaws and make them right in the home in the church and we tend to say that badness isn't in us it's in someone else and that's a huge issue that you know runs through Adventism and Christianity alike. Is that we don't want to admit that we are flawed people and that we need Jesus, and we you know put on these fig leaves of, name it, like whatever it is, right, to appear as a perfect person to the world. Um, whenever it's so damaging because our own people, our brothers and sisters, and even ourselves can't recognize in a safe place that yeah, you know, we have these flaws, and how do we come together? and you know, create a safe space to heal and grow. Um, so that's another aspect of it, just a point that we thought we'd add. Um, yeah. Just to think about.
0: So hopefully this will kind of be a bit of an eye-opening introduction to our weekend together, of just realizing that there are things that we are doing with the best of intentions like Saul of Tarsus, but it's causing tremendously harmful results. And to do some introspection, to do some searching for ourselves, is what we're doing biblical? Is it actually honoring God? And is it uplifting Jesus and God's true character of love? And if the answer is no, why are we doing it just because we've always done it? Or this is how we do things. Does that make sense? I think it's worthy of reflection um, because there are young people in our midst who aren't stupid. They recognize, And it's not just young people, it's adults too, who recognize there's... there's incongruence here. We're claiming that God is love, but then we're giving a picture of God to the world that doesn't look like love. And and many times it's subconscious in nature. It's not like we're saying God's a monster, follow him anyway. But we'll say that God is love, but then we'll say other things that imply a very different picture. And so we were doing a seminar on this a couple weeks ago, and um, one of the, the illustrations I gave was what is the picture that's given of God as a result of the things that you're saying and implying? If you could put an emoji that would signify what God looks like based upon what you're teaching and implying, would it be a happy face or would it be a frowny face? And to ask that hard question, because we may be thinking, well, it's biblical and people seem to stand by it, but if it makes God look like a monster, is it actually biblical? In the same way of saying, the seventh day is a Sabbath and not anything else, and you're dumb for thinking otherwise, is that really preaching the Sabbath truth? No. Now, the fact that the seventh day is indeed the the biblical Sabbath, that is a true statement. But the spirit in which that's communicated can imply something very different. Are you understanding? And I think we need to understand that there is a psychology behind the way in which we communicate and how people hear and especially for people who are already conscientious in nature, right? So if someone has an already anxious heart, and we give this gnarly picture of God just looking over your shoulder, you're never going to be good enough, what do you think that's going to do to their already anxious heart? So you make the anxiety go up or go down? Up or down? Yeah, it's going to go up, right? That's going to be a problem. And so I think it's important for us to not abandon our truth, And to let go of our biblical principles, the question is, we want to ensure that we're communicating those principles in a way that actually honors who God is and what he's about. Does that make sense? We still preach Bible truth. We still have our distinct and unique message, but we do it in a way that actually properly represents him and doesn't lead people to reject him. Yeah?
1: I think a huge part of this too is just going on your own healing journey. Like, what wounds do you have? What are, What is the environment that you came from? Was it unhealthy? Because oftentimes our view of God is shaped by our environment, our families, our communities, our parents. And so I think that's a huge component of it because if we are truly broken people um, with deep wounds in our past and then um, we you know spread the gospel out of that place of unhealthy views of God or woundedness, then it's probably not gonna come across Um, very accurately, right? So that's something that Dee and I have had to do as well. And honestly, me going on my healing journey, just being in therapy, talking to mentors has helped me reshape my view of God, has helped me to know what love and safety does look like. And in that headspace, truly be able to be in a headspace of being able to receive, you know, God's love and um, properly understand the word and how he shares his character. It's not i um, misinterpreting it because of what I believe or have experienced, right, so. So that's, uh, that's
0: kind of our introduction for the weekend. Uh, we do wanna let you know about a resource here. Um, we talked about CORE at the beginning of the program, but um, Sarah is beginning to do a work of creating resources um, whether that be things in writing form, in video form, and also providing coaching opportunities. So this is something that is of interest to you, of recognizing that um, I struggle with some of these things. I have an unhealthy picture of God. I don't know how to navigate some of these things. Um, how can they get access to these resources you're beginning to create?
1: So right now you can go to my stand store or follow me on Instagram called Hey you Brave. And I'm just really passionate about this project because... Um, Just me being on this journey has brought me so much joy, so much fulfillment, so much satisfaction, so much healing, and I want that for other people. And um, yeah, I received certifications in these areas to be able to um, properly guide people on their journey to finding spiritual healing, closing the gap of spiritual distance and being able to go on their own journey of developing deep intimacy with God. And I truly believe that's healing your most important relationship. We often wanna heal relationships with our families, our parents, our boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, whatever, but truly it starts with our relationship with God that will then ripple out into all of your other relationships and dynamics, so. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that could be helpful. Um, give a follow there at heyyourbrave, Y-O-U-R-E, brave. Y-O-U-R-E, brave. And uh, more and more resources are coming. So we're excited about that to kind of resource our church to help people have a a better connection with God and better view of themselves. Would you like to pray for us to close? Yeah.
1: God, thank you so much for this opportunity to share tonight and just have a conversation about um, real pain and real difficulties that are going on in the church. And we're just praying that your Holy Spirit will um, continue to work in our hearts and lead us to a place where Uh, we can continue to find deeper um, relationship with you, but um, also spiritual healing and emotional healing and just be able to not abandon our faith completely, but be able to find a balanced, healthy view of you that can just be the guiding force in our lives, that can be the safe space that we need um, both now and for eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was
0: brought to you by Audioverse